Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we're glad you're here on the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. I'm not sure the Democratic presidential candidates are going to be glad that we're here for the Three Martini Lunch. And Jim, we say it all the time. It's kind of a figure of speech. Get ready to pop the popcorn for these debates. At the one-hour mark last night, I literally popped popcorn uh, for the second hour of the debate. And uh, as you pointed out in the morning, Joel, today, uh, it did not disappoint. We'll get into uh, a lot of these clips here in just a second. But I think Michael Bloomberg inadvertently uh, summed up the night pretty well for the, from a Republican perspective here. I can't think of a ways that would make it easier for Donald Trump to get reelected than listening to this conversation. So uh, on, a lo- <laughs> on, a, on a lot of different fronts. That was about socialism. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, let's kick it off. First question was, hey, Bernie Sanders, how are you the most electable person? So he says, oh, I'm leading a revolution. We're bringing in people who have never been part of the process before. They kick it to Bloomberg, who says Sanders can't win. And then Liz Warren steps in. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. (laughs) Democrats are not going to win if we have a nominee who has a history of hiding his tax returns, of harassing women, and of supporting racist policies like redlining and stop and frisk. Look, I'll support who whoever the Democratic nominee is. But understand this. Democrats take a huge risk if we just substitute one arrogant billionaire for another. Jim, you got to love the fact that she lays out this whole list of horribles and says, well, if he's the nominee, I'll still support him. But uh, then it uh, came to uh, non-disclosure agreements. Hallie Jackson asking that of Bloomberg, uh, these dozens of people over the years who have taken money in exchange for vowing to never publicly talk about their time working for Bloomberg. So he pretty much dodged the question, spent all of his time talking about women he promoted to high positions and uh, the number of women that he helped to uh, succeed over the years, which led to this response from Elizabeth Warren. I hope you heard what his defense was. I've been nice to some women. That just doesn't cut it. The mayor has to stand on his record. And what we need to know is exactly what's lurking out there. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? We have a very few... Non-disclosure agreements. Uh, how many? Is Let me there? finish. How many is there? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put, and let me put, there's a be, agreements between two parties that wanted to keep it quiet, and that's up to them. They signed those agreements, so, and we'll live with it. So, Jim, we got a lot of bites here. I don't want to play them all and then have us go back to, to talk about a bunch of different topics here. So uh, we'll, we'll kind of address each of them uh, as part of kind of a three-part good martini here. So uh, before we get on to Bernie versus Bloomberg, uh, that was kind of the early part of the night. Bloomberg, we knew he might be a little bit rusty, but, man, he got pounded. Not sure if it's too little too late for Warren, but uh, how much damage was done to Bloomberg here? Greg, if you and I had not already filled up our weekly quotient of silliness with President's Day, 
and saluting <laughs> the presidents that existed only in fiction. I would say you and I should go over everything from last night's debate, like Pat Summerall and John Madden on the Telestrator, because that was a blitzing linebacker hitting you from the uh, from the blind side. Like you, like like I haven't seen. Where has this Elizabeth Warren been this entire campaign? She, you, the only explanation, Greg, is that she took lessons in this Rambo-like fighting cage from Tulsi Gabbard. I will teach you, but you must use it to fight the the evil warmongers. I mean, if I were doing that, it would be something like she. You know, she may not look like much, but when she gets a full head of steam, boom! You can just see him there. And Bloomberg was not ready for that. You got to take him out for a few plays after that. He he just looks like he's 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 not a big old guy, and uh, he's you know you got a new concussion protocol on him. Let's make an observation. Mike Bloomberg in these campaign ads looks like Mister Fixit, right? Mister, this guy's ready for anything. Unflappable. He can handle anything. And then he goes out there, and I'm not even going to make any stature jokes, but he just, he looks nothing like the guy in the commercials. These were the areas where anybody could have seen, this is this is where the other Democrats are going to come after him, right? It's the Me Too era. Bloomberg needed a better defense ready to go on that, and he didn't. And he just looked like a deer in the headlights. Um, it was overall a really bad night for him. I mean, the fact that everybody was coming after him and he didn't seem prepared for it, that's problem number one. The problem number two um, is that I think maybe there isn't any good defense for this. Like the, uh, we, I was just talking about this with some of the other editors at National Review. Like maybe you do the Trump thing and you say, ah, you know, they're all a bunch of liars. You know, like you, you can go on the attack on the opposition, but that doesn't play in a Democratic primary. He, at one point, Bloomberg's defense insisted, well, that all the women entered into these NDAs voluntarily. Well, yeah, because you're an employer and they're uh, and uh, you're you're a billionaire, and they want to get some sort of compensation for a hostile work environment. Like this is not a freely negotiated deal between two equals. You're worth fifty billion dollars, man. When the rest of the campaign goes, ooh, you know, when the audience says that, it, it you know, like they've just seen Alex Smith's leg turn sideways or or Theismann or something. That's a sign you've had a really bad night. Um, even the Bloomberg spin said, you know, after 45 minutes, he got his seat legs back. <laughs> Let's just pretend those first 45 minutes didn't happen. Um, now, here's the thing. If for any other candidate, this would be a death blow, uh, metaphorically, of course. The, the, the thing is, when you when you have an extra $400 million to run in ads to edit them, <laughs> to make it look like you did okay in the debate, it may not be quite as damaging for him. But I think if you're, if you're on the Bloomberg bandwagon the last couple of days... I think you're probably at least a little bit shaken by the fact that he didn't seem nearly as ready for it. I don't think going up against Trump's going to be that much easier. Speaking of Bloomberg, though, uh, later in the debate, he did get some good shots in on uh, Bernie Sanders when the topic came to uh, should we have a socialist or someone who embraces socialism? Bernie made his case for why uh, he thinks that uh, his vision is right for America. And then Bloomberg uh, came back with a couple different shots, including this one. What a wonderful country we have. The best known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. What I miss here. And this. You own a large company. Would you support what Senator Sanders is proposing? Absolutely not. I can't think of a ways that would make it easier for Donald Trump to get reelected than listening to this conversation. <laughs> it's ridiculous. We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism, and it just didn't work. I love all the what? What do you mean it didn't work is kind of the <laughs> reaction of Warren and Bernie and everybody. Jim, uh, any points scored there or not so much in a Democratic debate? 
Well, okay, first of all, like this is if you having torn apart Bloomberg in the first part of the segment, let's you know, he did get better as the night went on. This what you played there were probably some of his best exchanges. And this is what like whether or not Democrats like it, this is why they should be thankful that Bloomberg was was up on that stage. Because you notice all of those arguments about the three homes and he's a millionaire and this country isn't gonna go for socialism, all of that could have been said by Joe Biden. All of that could have been said by Elizabeth Warren if she you know, she called herself a, a capitalist. She apparently has some sort of disagreement with Sanders, but she doesn't want to dwell on that, perhaps because she wants to be his running mate. Buttigieg kind of went there here and there, but but by and large, you know, it was, it was up to Bloomberg to come out and say this is a ridiculous idea. And let's also note Bloomberg's like like even when we see more of him in interviews and debates and stuff like that. Look for how often he says things like "get real" or "you know, come on, you know, you're being the idea that anybody's viewpoint except his it's not offered in good faith, it's not plausible, it's fantasy land, it's ridiculous, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Now, here's the thing: those of us who believe that America should head in the direction of socialism agree with this, and so like, you know, this is Bloomberg at his best when he is dismissing something that really deserves to be dismissed. But by and large, uh, I think it came a little late in the process, and again. This argument about the political viability of socialism really should have been happening all throughout 2019. This is kind of late in the process. And maybe because of the heart attack, everybody else in the field kind of underestimated Sanders. But right now, the Democrats appear to be on a collision course for, at minimum, Sanders having the most delegates at the end of the process, maybe not enough to win the nomination outright, and heading into a convention where their options are nominate Sanders. And oh, by the way, there are Democrats in the House who think Sanders would cost them the House. Uh, everybody down ticket is terrified of, of a Sanders nomination, or at least a whole bunch of them are. And the other option is to not give Sanders the nomination, have it go to a second ballot, have the superdelegates jump in. And I guess you just hope that the Bernie bros don't burn down Milwaukee on the way out. I mean, this is this is really the nightmare scenario for the Democrats. And that's what made last night so delicious and enjoyable for those of us who have no stake in this, um, because... In the end, the Democrats have this is this is a debate that has been waiting for the Democrats has been the Democrats have been waiting to have the entire process. And they were afraid to have it. They were afraid to say, you know what? No, we really shouldn't nominate a socialist. It's too radical. It's, it's too much of a risk. This is never going to fly in a country with less than four percent unemployment. But they put it off. Well, it's too late. It, it basically, this is, it's now or never. And this is going to turn into a nasty fight between now and the convention with Bernie probably favored, but if anybody's going to take him down, you know, you saw last night why Bloomberg could be the guy who could just tear him apart and, you know, get Democrats to have second thoughts. Yeah, you can tell who everybody thinks is going to end up with the most delegates, though, because Chuck Todd asked the question, should the person with the most delegates, even if it's not a majority, uh, be the nominee? And uh, everyone except Bernie said no. (laughs) The process should play out. So uh, they kind of know where, at least at the moment, Things look like they're heading. Okay, last part of the good martini. Um, we had Warren and Bloomberg uh, fighting it out, or really just Bloomberg getting pummeled by Warren in a couple of those questions. Uh, over on the other side of the stage, it was Pete versus Amy. Uh, first of all, uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar going toe-to-toe over the fact that Klobuchar couldn't name the president of Mexico a few days ago. You're staking your candidacy on your Washington experience. You're on the committee that oversees border security. You're on the committee that does trade. You're literally in uh, part of the committee that's overseeing these things. And we're not able to speak to literally the first thing about the politics of the country you, to ourselves. Are you trying to say that I'm dumb or are you mocking me here, Pete? I'm I saying that you said shouldn't trivialize I made that an error. 
And then later on, they were talking about immigration and Klobuchar. It was her turn to fire back. Then I worked on the 2013 bill. I'm actually so right. proud of the work I've done on immigration reform. And you know what? You have not been in the arena doing that work. You've memorized a bunch of talking points and a bunch of things. But I can tell you one thing. What the people of this country want, they want a leader that has the heart for the immigrants of this country. And that is me. Jim, I think that zinger stuck because there's a lot of uh, a lot of truth to that. Buttigieg uh, fired back with, you might not think being the mayor of South Bend is in the arena. And uh, I think most people would probably say on a national level, no, it's not really <laughs> it's, it's, It may not even be in the arena of Indiana. No offense to South Bend, but, uh, I mean, uh, some of the issues that come up for the city council are not exactly the same thing you'll deal with as president. So what did you make of that uh, intense rivalry at the other end of the stage? It's so weird to see, like, the fifth and sixth most popular candidate just <laughs> going at it hammer and tongs. Uh, by comparison, Sanders and Bloomberg were going at it hammer and sickle. <laughs> um <laughs> But like, so the and the only explanation for it is that uh, they really don't like each other, and in particular, like Amy Klobuchar cannot stand Pete Buttigieg. But let me let me I, a point I think can't be emphasized enough. I have no problem with having Spanish language uh, television news networks, you know, co-hosting or co-moderating these debates. I've not noticed that much of an issue with any of most of the other uh, representatives from other other networks, but. The reason this came up was because Notiz Telemundo correspondent Vanessa Hawk decided that Amy Klobuchar, not remembering the name of Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, and I had to look that up. Listeners of this podcast know I call Greg Cam like half the time. I, 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 Mickey, I, I do a whole bunch of podcasts, and on a good day, I get three quarters of the names right. So, you know, all of us have forgotten somebody's name. It's not, you know, yes, it was kind of ridiculous. They made a huge stink about it. Uh, regarding George W. Bush and the president of Pakistan. Trump did this a few times. Look, you know what a president has to help him deal with foreign leaders? Staff to remind him who he's talking to and what their name is and how to pronounce it. This is not a serious argument against Amy Klobuchar. And, the, the you know, uh, Vanessa Hawk just decided, like, like the, it, was, it was a question. And then there was a follow-up question. And then there was a third follow-up question, which was really accusatory. And then Buttigieg was like, oh, you know what? I, I can show off that I'm the smartest kid in the class again. I know all the names. And he, you know, and he just seems to, you know, he's like go, going after it. The best line from Klobuchar the entire evening was, oh, if only we could all be as perfect as you, Pete. <laughs> and you, know, you could just tell she cannot stand him. Um, and I think that was a, uh, everyone's like, oh, my goodness, rough night last night. I think what's not getting enough attention this morning, and maybe as you know the, the debate gets digested, you'll see more focus on this. These candidates, like you know, everyone's going to say at the convention, oh, we're all united behind our nominee, blah, blah. No, I, I think these, you look, it's very clear last night. These six candidates, very few of them like each other. Very few of them think each other is qualified to be president. Very few think the rest of the field can beat Trump. Maybe Warren thinks well enough of Sanders. Uh, maybe Biden is still on relatively good terms with a bunch of these guys. But really... You know, Bloomberg and Sanders hate each other. Bloomberg and Warren hate each other. Klobuchar cannot stand Buttigieg. Buttigieg thinks he's on, you know, he's up on stage with a cast of Cocoon. Um, I mean, by the way, when you're the 30-something really healthy, slim guy, it's very easy to say, we should all just release our physicals right now. <laughs> right. Let's all do push-ups, everyone. Jumping jacks. Let's see how this goes. Again, I don't think either one of them necessarily changed anything. In fact, probably this is the de facto end of the Klobuchar 
seriousness of her bid. She needed everything to break right for her. Um, I don't think Nevada looks great for her. South Carolina does not seem like a natural state for her. And I don't think a national infrastructure to promote Klobuchar is just cropping up as we speak in these Super Tuesday states. But uh, and also the other thing is last night, I think we got a sense of why Klobuchar had not caught fire, why she is kind of this last ditch effort on the part of the establishment. And uh, Greg, I don't know about you. I think I finally felt like what her employees feel (laughs) with some of those flashes of anger we saw from her. All right, let's uh, let's move on to our second good martini. Now we'll do these uh, last couple of martinis pretty quick. Uh, national satisfaction is at a 15-year high. A new Gallup survey, and this is reported by the Washington Examiner, uh, shows that people are quote practically giddy with the economic improvement under President Trump, and they believe by a two-to-one margin that it will only get better. The latest Gallup survey also found that the good feelings have helped Trump to sustain his highest approval rating at 49 percent which, quote, greatly increases Trump's chances of being reelected. Now, to show you where we've been in the survey, 45 percent of Americans are satisfied with the state of the country, which is a 15 year high. The last time it was that high was 2005. But as we move further along here, 63 percent of adults rate current economic conditions as either good or excellent. Just nine percent rate them as poor. By 61 to 33, Americans say the economy is getting better rather than worse. And Gallup's Economic Confidence Index, a summary of ratings of current conditions and whether the economy is getting better or worse, is at a rate of plus 41 right now, which is the highest since a plus 44 mark in October of 2000. Uh, Jim, those are normally conditions for a landslide re-election. We'll see if that actually happens. Yeah, and the fact that Trump is not guaranteed of a landslide re-election says a great deal about his personality, the way he treats people, the way he treats his staff, the way he tweets, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that having been said, I'm, I'm going to repeat a half-remembered conversation with my colleague Ramesh Panuru a bunch of years ago. We were sitting around, and the topic somehow turned to 1996 presidential election. And because Ramesh is one of the smartest guys I know, I'm going to repeat his assertions and just assume that they're true. <laughs> and he basically said, we were talking about, you know, is there anything Dole could have done differently? And, and Ramesh pointed out that basically every single indicator uh, by every standard of American life was getting better in, throughout most of 1996, and in particular in the fall of 1996. Unemployment was down. Wages were up. Uh, number of people on welfare was down. We were just starting to get into the, the first wave of the dot-com boom that was going to dominate the late 90s. Um, Abortion rate was down. Divorce rate was down. I mean, every single measurement of American life, things in 1996 were getting better. Bill Clinton, as you'll recall, had some flaws as a candidate. (laughs) He had some flaws as a husband and as a human being. He had some major character issues. But by and large, Bob Dole never got close. I don't even, I'd have to go back and check the poll. I don't know if it was ever that plausible. The entire narrative of what, what turned out to be really arguably the last boring presidential election uh, in, in recent American history is that it was, well, Clinton's probably got this thing locked up. How much is Perot going to take? You know, um, that, that was a uh, long, slow, painful march to defeat for Bob Dole. And for Republicans, the, the, the moral victory was keeping Bill Clinton under 50%, which they did. He was at 49%. That is the kind of, of headwinds you can go into. And at that point, the interesting thing is I don't think many people say, ah, Bob Dole, what a terrible campaign he ran. When the incumbent president is running with a roaring economy, you just, you know, sorry, Uh, people might mock Walter Mondale for, uh, you know, promising to raise taxes. But by and large, again, incumbent president running well, 
uh, economy is doing well, you, know, you, you don't have much of a chance. Um, if Donald Trump wins re-election, and right now I think it's a little more likely than possible, though there's still a lot of road to run and, and a lot could happen, we're going to look back and maybe we might say, you know what, for all the drama around the 2020 Democratic primary, they never really had that much of a chance when this many things appear to be going right for America, both economically and in a whole bunch of other factors of quality of life. So things definitely headed in the right direction, certainly in the minds of uh, a, a big chunk of American voters here. So we'll see how that actually translates in the months ahead. Uh, Jim, back to the debate for our crazy martini here. And this was back to the economic debate. I don't remember the original question, but uh, they were talking about billionaires. And so we finally had a, well, we had a different billionaire on stage. Tom Steyer's been on there before, but he wasn't there. He didn't qualify, I guess. And so uh, Bloomberg was on there. And so uh, Bernie was uh, castigating billionaires. The working people don't get their fair share and yada, yada, yada. And uh, so Chuck Todd from uh, MSNBC uh, decided to uh, point the question directly at Bloomberg like this. Mayor Bloomberg, should you exist? I can't speak for all billionaires. All I know is I've been very lucky, made a lot of money, and I'm giving it all away to make this country better. And a good chunk of it goes to the Democratic Party as well. Is it too much? Have you earned too much money? Has it been an obscene amount of Should you have earned that much money? Yes. I worked very hard for it. And I'm giving it away. You should be allowed to have the money you've earned. Jim, I, I, again, I, I like the answer. I'm not sure how well it played among Democrats, but even in the room, it got a few cheers. Yeah, let's also just observe the sheer absurdity of a debate <laughs> moderator saying to a candidate, should you exist? I mean, that's you, you want to talk about layup questions. No. <laughs> would, would lightning strike him? <laughs> that's the end of Bloomberg. He, he nullified his own existence. By the way, for the people may not know, people may know, oh, you know, Bloomberg made his money on Wall Street or something. Uh, he did make his initial fortune and he walked out of Salomon Brothers with something like $10 million. But what really turned Bloomberg into this extremely wealthy guy is the Bloomberg, he set up Bloomberg Business News. And it was not really like a traditional news service. It was much more stock information. It was much more keeping track of the markets, bonds, interest rates, all kinds of financial data that you had to lease a, a, it looked like a computer terminal, but this is like really before personal computers and desktop computers. You had to buy the device. It would sit on your desk. And it was, it was like buying a TV that received only one channel, basically. And you, you, you got it. And of course, it, obviously, this was not for the general public. This was for people who worked on Wall Street, people who worked in the financial industry and who needed to know this stuff. And it could tell it to you a lot faster than, uh, this is pre-internet, you know, like, you know, the next morning's paper or calling somebody on the phone or something like that. It was a lot of financial data in one place for people who needed to track what the market was doing day by day. And the 1980s were the perfect time to come along and offer this. Uh, you can picture, you know, uh, Gordon Gecko, Michael Milken, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it wasn't, there was nothing you know, fraudulent about it. It was like he create, he figured out that there was a, a market out there for what he did. I think he leased him for a thousand bucks a month. And oh, by the way, he had put together an audience that was extremely wealthy. And of course, this is great for advertisers. So as they said, it was not where you, you wouldn't advertise on Bloomberg, uh, what eventually became Bloomberg Business News television channel. You wouldn't advertise on this for Coca-Cola, but you'd invest for this if you had a Mercedes Benz. If you wanted to, to get the attention of really rich people, that's what Bloomberg News did. Now, what's interesting is that Mike Bloomberg became a billionaire creating a product that most Americans never encounter. If you work in the financial industry, you've probably seen a Bloomberg terminal. You might remember them. But either way, he found a need 
and he created a product and he, he did hire good people to work for them. Bernie Sanders uh, basically suggested that, you know, his workers deserve more credit. But, you know, the thing is, all of Bloomberg's workers had the option of uh, once they'd worked there, they could go off and, you know, we'll work for somebody else or form their own company and all that kind of stuff. So by and large, the, you know, the, the argument of Bloomberg was greedy. Look, lots of other people made money working at Bloomberg News over the years. I don't know about you, Greg. I'm noticing rather odd. I was watching the, some of the pre-debate discussion. It was somebody from the New York Times and John Heilman. And they said, well, as you know, I worked for Bloomberg for three years. And some other panel says, of course, so did I. So when like half your panel has worked for one of the candidates and the reporters, I think it's a little bit uh, a strange set of circumstances. But anyway, it was a pretty good defense of the free market system and building a business and entrepreneurship from Mike Bloomberg. You're right. This isn't what Democrats want to hear. Um, I guess the question is, do the Democrats want to say as a party, if you are this person who's it's, it's kind of like you, you didn't build that on steroids. If you built that, you're the enemy. And uh, Bloomberg recognizes this is uh, probably a form of electoral suicide for the Democrats. In addition to uh, the reporters who have you know worked for Bloomberg in the past, all these cable networks uh, now have their entire advertising schedule filled with Bloomberg money. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if that's influencing their coverage either. We'll see, I guess. Uh, you just, you know, we, you and I are taping this in the state of Virginia. There was a fascinating figure on MSNBC last night, not something I, not something I say very often. 99.996% of all political advertising in the state of Virginia on television this past year has been from Mike Bloomberg. It was like some million from him. And I believe $1,400 from the Trump campaign. And nobody else has run a single ad in the state of Virginia. Wow, with all those nines, you'd think Herman Cain would be in the discussion. But... <laughs> he got to it. He got to the 999. <laughs> ah, good memories. Jim, ah, we actually enjoyed a Democratic debate. Mark the day down in history. Hopefully we'll uh, see it again next week. It's too soon, <laughs> but but hopefully we'll have more fireworks. Listeners, I hope it was good for you, too. <laughs> See you Jim, tomorrow, Greg. Jim Gary, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a nice review, and join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.